Good morning. The scripture is from Daniel 3. You may follow along on page 6 of your bulletin. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and and thrown into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. 
Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Got a nice chorus going on back there. That's... It's a good reminder. That's how God sees us, loving us like his children, right? Let's pray. God, you are our father, and we are your crying children, because we need you that much, even when we're not honest enough to admit it, and even when we're not aware of our deep, desperate need for you. We need you. We love you. So please love us well, even now, as you communicate your word to us through your word. So come, use your servant. I'm weak. And come, speak to your people. We're all weak, but we need your voice. We need power from the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, it's that special time in our city. It doesn't come around very often. It's a time when people uh, look out and salivate over their options, campaign for their favorites, criticize the preferences of others, and then eventually people across the city gather around, head to a table, and check off the ones they want. And you might think that I'm talking about the presidential primary elections. I'm actually talking about Girl Scout cookies. And I'm hoping you agree with me that the Samoas are the very best ones. No contest. We can fight about it later. But no, it is that special District of Columbia time of year and time for our nation as well. Uh, Primary and caucus season and also an election year. And so it seemed to make sense pastorally for us to devote a little bit of time to the question of politics. We're starting a new series today, a three-week series called Faith and Public Life. And that phrase there, public life, might be new or different for you. If I could just explain it, that public life stands in contrast to private life, your personal interests or your personal morality. We're talking here about the way in which Christian faith might inform your interactions with the concerns of the world around you. That phrase, public life, for many might be closer in meaning to a more common phrase, civic life, the shared affairs of a community, of a city, or of a nation. And of course, as we talk about the intersection of Christian faith and public life, we're not just talking about politics per se. There are many more ways beyond just government affairs and public policy by which Christians are called to be engaged with concerns and needs that are larger than themselves, ways in which we can serve neighbor and world. But here we are, and by no means over these next couple of weeks will you be directed from this pulpit as to who to vote for or concerning specifics around public policy, believing as we do that the Bible doesn't give us the freedom or the authority to speak to that level of detail, 
thus saith the Lord, vote for this person, that person? No, the Bible has not said so. God has not told us precisely how we can in good conscience work out a whole variety of different measures of public policy. But what the Bible does speak to are important questions like these, which we will consider over the next couple of weeks. How do Christians engage culture and promote our neighbor's good? And what's distinct about a Christian's approach to politics? How does faith in Christ shape how and why one engages these issues? What is a Christian's unique responsibility? And what virtues or or values should matter as you step into the voting booth or step into the local neighborhood? And these topics and questions, of course, have special relevance for a church in the District of Columbia during an election year like now. But really, these are matters that matter all the time because they're matters of Christian discipleship as we're called not only to love God, but to love neighbor, as we're called not only to serve God, but to serve the world around us. It's a matter of Christian discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus in public life, not just private life, public life as neighbors laboring for the common good? So we begin today in the third chapter of the fascinating Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel tells the story of the exile of God's people around 600 B.C., so a long time ago. And this book focuses on the story of a young man named Daniel, together with three friends of his, Jewish young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego mentioned first in our passage in verse 12, and then again at several different points. They were deported from their homeland in Israel and then forced to live as resident aliens in Babylon, a faraway foreign land, about 1,000 miles away from home. I mentioned their names to you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those actually weren't their real names. In chapter 1 of this book, we're actually told that they were given, actually by force, these new Babylonian names upon arriving in exile, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, they were sort of in captivity being given a new identity. One of the ways that Babylon sought to treat its many captive people was to sort of reprogram them mentally, emotionally, and even religiously reprogram them in their very core identity. And what we find in this passage is this effort in this Babylonian culture to reprogram even these people in the deepest places of their hearts, the place where things mattered most. It was a culture in which politics literally was religion. So we see in verse 10 and verse 15, that the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, had erected this very large golden image, a statue. We're told earlier in the chapter that it was about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So a really big sucker. He couldn't miss it. 
plopped down right in the middle of the plains for all eyes to see and all knees to bow. King Nebuchadnezzar had decreed, we're told, that whenever you hear this religious music being played, that you will fall down and worship this statue. And scholars tell us that this statue may have represented some local Babylonian gods, or it might have even have been an image of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Either way, the command is clear. You are to bow to the emperor. Bow to the king. It was a culture, again, in which politics literally was religion, and to refuse to comply, to refuse to bow, meant you would be executed immediately. As we're told in verse 11 and verse 15, you'd be thrown into a blazing, fiery furnace. Now, here's the thing. The culture in which we now live isn't as different from this day in Babylon as we might at first think. And sure, there's no emperor, no statue, no 90-foot thing that you're called to fall prostrate before, no law requiring you to bow upon penalty of death. But if we listen closely to our culture and maybe even to our hearts, we can discern that even here and now, politics has increasingly become religion. Even among professing Christians, maybe not literally, but all too often, we're not far off. And the price, whether or not we actually bow our knee, is a kind of death. That's the central theme of today's sermon, what you might call the, the problem of the idolatry of politics. Next week, we're going to look at what healthy political engagement can look like for Christians. But before we go there, we want to start today with what political engagement must not look like, cannot look like for Christians, political idolatry. You may know the saying, it might be familiar to you, that two things that you don't talk about over dinner, right? Politics and religion. And we sort of accept that as a, as a truism. It might even be seen as wisdom for avoiding conflict or, or just smarts for keeping polite company. But what if we can't talk, uh, what if our inability to talk about politics over dinner in polite company is because we just hold on to our political views too tightly? Or because we can't get along with people who believe differently? What if it's smarter in some settings to avoid politics only because we have a spiritual disorder? Over the last half century, sociologists observe that religion in the West, in America, has slowly become less and less important to people's personal identity. And in that same time period, politics has actually filled that void, taken a, a greater and greater place of importance in Americans' personal identity. Uh, one tiny little data point to illustrate that point 
is an interesting survey that shows that in 1960, only about 5%, a small number, 5% of Americans said that they would be upset if their son or daughter married someone from a, a different political persuasion. By 2008, that number had risen all the way up to 40%. It, it, nearly half of parents in our country would just go bonkers if you brought home a Democrat or a Republican if that's not the stripe that your family was raised in. Political polarization is up. I don't need to tell you that. We experience it on a regular basis. But so is the way in which we fuse politics with our core personal identities. Recently, we've heard in the public square many critiques of the ways in which religious conservatives have shown this tendency to fuse personal identity with politics, the way political viewpoints so often in those corners can be baptized in even Christian rhetoric. It's something that needs to be watched out for. But this is true also on the other side, among secular or religiously unaffiliated Americans on the left. A few years ago, there was actually a, a really fascinating article in The Atlantic that was in, entitled, Politics as the New Religion for Progressive Democrats. And there in that article, after looking at a couple of different trends, there was this helpful, interesting, fascinating, provocative statement that was made. Political engagement may be providing these Americans with a new form of identity. On both sides of the aisle, sociologists and observers would say that social media is just making it worse. Right? Eitan Hirsch, a political scientist at Tufts University, recently said this, this online world of political identity is basically acting as a, a replacement for people who maybe a generation or two before would identify as Catholic or as Jewish or as Irish or as Italian. See, right now, the, the biggest and, and most important checkbox for so many of us, more than some of us are even willing to admit the checkbox that drills right down to the core of who we are is Republican, is Democrat, is supporter of her, is supporter of him. What's the biggest checkbox in your heart? This is not a new problem, but it is, it seems, getting worse. And we are all collectively in our country and even in the Christian church, worse off for it. A few years ago, Michael Ware, a Christian author and strategist, who a few years ago served in the White House Faith-Based Initiative in President Obama's administration, wrote this insightfully. He said, politics is causing great spiritual harm in Americans' lives. And a big reason for that is Americans are going to politics to get their spiritual needs met. And it's an endeavor and a hope that politics simply cannot deliver on to meet our spiritual and emotional needs, to give us hope in the face of trial, to give us courage in the world, to give us meaning and identity, and even to give us community, things that politics cannot deliver on. 
But we do turn to it for our deepest needs more than we should, and again, maybe more than we admit. This idolatry of politics and infects many of our hearts, and, and you may not be someone who bows to a golden statue, but are you, it's worth considering, are you a person who is currently bowing to a particular party or an idol- ideology? And of course, I'm not saying, no one is saying, the Bible doesn't say that Christians should not affiliate with party. But does that run down to your very core identity, answering questions like, who am I and what is it that makes me feel important and right in the world? Are you someone that bows to political ideology, where you're shaped more by political platform and ideas and values? more so than the Word of God. And I think one of the tests of this is is the language and the verbiage that you use always parroting talking points from your political corner more than they parrot, well, or just recite words from the Word of God. Have you simply been totally shaped by the categories and the code and the vocabulary of the political world? And you find yourself to be far more ignorant of what God says in his word. Are you someone that bows to nation? Where you are ultimately concerned about a geopolitical entity or or perhaps an ethnic group associated with it. Where these run as your ultimate concerns. It doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't give room for patriotism. Love of one's country is absolutely compatible with Christian faith. But there can be a certain kind of nationalism that can be a form of idolatry. Are we aware of that? Are we people who bow to winning in the way that we look at politics, where political victory itself becomes our God, where the pursuit of winning is pursued at all costs, even resorting to immoral means in order to reach even perhaps moral ends. But where winning becomes the only thing that we're after. Or perhaps are we people that bow our knee and our hearts to the notion of social progress, where if we don't feel like things are getting better, however we define that, If the world is not progressing according to my own political vision, then the world is going down the tubes and therefore throw up your hands. It's not worth living for. And finally and lastly, do you find yourself bowing to yourself even in your pursuit of a political agenda, even in your affiliation with political party or ideology where really you're using that perhaps as a way to prop up you yourself or your tribe, forgetting that the Bible calls us to lay down our lives for neighbor, for people beyond ourselves. Idolatry of self makes us forget, sometimes deliberately, the call to love our neighbor and even indeed our enemies. And how do you know if one of these are actually a problem for you? How do you know if you have perhaps a political idolatry problem. Well, this passage points us to one big symptom that maybe we can pay attention to just for a few minutes. And here it is. Rage. 
hate. Verse 13, verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar, having been defied, being confronted by people that will not bow their knee, believing that he deserves it, that he's entitled to it, is furious with rage. Verse 13, filled with fury. Verse 19. Oh, friends, it's hard to notice it because it's just in the air. And it's so common that you might even think it's normal. Are you angry all the time? Your mind, your conversation, so saturated with political debate, some of which, yes, are important, but does your soul savor it and cling to it in such a way where you're just ornery and, dare we even say, full of hate? all the time. For some of us, maybe the greatest wisdom for this coming week is simply to take more time to turn off the news, to shut off the device, and to take a break. Not only sociologists, but even psychologists now, psychiatrists, are noting that the measurable toll emotionally, psychologically, and even physically that our political obsessions are starting to have on us individually and collectively. Do you detect a Nebuchadnezzar-like political rage in your soul? It might be the sign that you are bowing your knee, bowing your knee. This expresses itself in a number of different ways, of course. Rage that begins to express itself in demonization. Right, where you're beginning to look at people that disagree with you, maybe political opponents, either that you work against occupationally or perhaps just believe against personally. And you constantly say to yourself, you know, what's really wrong with the world are those people over there. And it's not just hot anger that you feel, now it's contempt. They're beneath you, not worthy of your respect. Before you know it, they are subhuman to you. How can you believe that? How can you possibly vote that way? How can you? And we literally are dehumanizing people. Leading to what you might describe as executions in our hearts. There's demonization and then there's also execution in verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar says, if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And guys, that can just about be a quote of what we sometimes might say in our hearts about those with whom we politically disagree. If you don't agree, if you don't abide, if you don't bow, you shall be canceled, cast into a metaphorically but I wish truly burning, fiery furnace. And this is most expressed oftentimes in the loss of relationships. 
You know, what's interesting, in verse 19, we hear about how Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what's interesting is, remember, these guys actually were fairly high-ranking officials in his administration at this time. They had won favor with the king. They had risen in the ranks and were in service to the king. Perhaps he felt especially betrayed for those reasons, and we'll hear a little bit more about their rise in the coming weeks. But what we also find, though, is that here he was turning against them. Those whom he himself was once in partnership with, now he's beginning to see as the enemy. We also see a cost in relationships to this idolatry in verse 22, when we're told that Nebuchadnezzar then gets so mad and that he tells them to turn up the heat in the furnace. For no other reason but rage. And it was so overheated, we're told, that the flame of the fire just emblazoned over and engulfed and killed some of the mighty men, some of the best soldiers in Nebuchadnezzar's army. Right? He killed even one of his own. He executed one of his own because he was bowing his knee. Which is precisely what far too many Christians continue to do, killing one of their own emotionally, relationally, because of the effects of political idolatry. You know, even non-religious sociologists now acknowledge that in prior generations in our country's history, churches were known as a place that would unite people with diverse political opinions. That churches were places that used to teach people how to interact in a politically integrated environment, how to engage in respectful discourse with Christian brothers and sisters of opposing political viewpoints. And not only were churches better off for it, but the whole nation actually was better off because of that unique dynamic that was fostered by the grace of God in a family-like setting. Churches were places that would bear witness to Christ also in being able to say that because our highest allegiance is to Jesus, therefore these things that sure are even important to us, but because they're not the most important thing to us, we can link arm in arm and walk side by side and call each other sister and call each other brother. But now even churches... And in some places, especially churches, for goodness sakes, are losing their ability to achieve this kind of unity in the midst of political diversity. Losing the ability to expose people to diverse political views in a mutually supportive environment. See, the problem isn't that political affiliation is making Christians transgress their ultimate loyalty to Christ and to brothers and sisters. The problem is that political affiliation has for many Christians become their ultimate loyalty and identity. Even as you sit in pews and say, I bow my knee to Jesus, your inability to fellowship with people that believe politically differently testifies otherwise. Do you dare to believe that? There's some repair, healing, recovery, and maybe even repentance that needs to be had in the Christian church, even amongst us today. And I stand there among you 
right? Different ways in which we need to humbly assess our hearts and see where our true functional allegiances really lie. So what's the alternative? We'll look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's example. Verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your mighty majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I mean, do you see this? The way in which they express the deepest kind of loyalty, not to man, not to party, but to their God. They know they're answerable to their God alone. They call God, not just God, but they even describe him as our God. They feel bound to him. They know they are united to him by covenant, by promise. They call him our God whom we serve. They're committed to worshiping him only. They believe in his power. They say he's able to deliver us. He really is. But they're also submitted to his sovereign will and wisdom. His right to choose how and even whether he will rescue them when they say, but if not, even if he does not rescue us as we hope he will and as we believe he has the power to do, even then, even if we die, we will not bow our knee to you. Here you have these individuals whose deepest sense of meaning was grounded in their God, whose deepest hopes were anchored in their God, whose identities were shaped, formed, and rooted in their God. And it's just amazing if you can play out this real-life situation that played out in real history. If you think about it as a real thing, these are men facing death, And they're sitting here in custody, bound, we're told, several times, bound in their cloaks and tunics. But they were, among everyone else in the place, the most free people of all. Because if you're bound to your God, then you're bound to no one and nothing else. This is the kind of freedom from the idolatry of state and politics and people that the Bible invites us to. And notice three expressions of this freedom. First, we find a refusal to bow to a sinful culture or a sinful government. It sounds very much like the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. Notice they are firm in their resistance, but they're also humble about it. They're not demonstrative. They're not here to attract attention. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar the king doesn't even know that they are resisting his decree 
until some of their jealous co-workers rat them out. They have freedom to say no because of their allegiance to their God. Do we have the freedom to refuse to bow, to, to say no? To, to, when needed, to be able to say no to party. When needed, to be able to say no to political strategy and tactics. To be able to say no to people whether their personalities or their demands, to say no to the allure of power. You see, because if you only and always say yes to these things, if you're always finding yourself in total agreement with a certain ideology or party or person, then almost for certain you are bowing to someone or something other than God. The second expression of freedom that we find here, not only refusal to bow, secondly, respect for opponents. On a couple of occasions, you hear Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refer to the very king who not only was seeking to kill them, but also surely had executed countless other people that had not obeyed this decree. They refer to him as your majesty, your majesty, O king, giving honor and deference to his office, even as much as they surely, on the basis of God's truth, could critique his actions and decisions as evil in the eyes of God. This is an invitation to express the freedom to actually show respect in the way that you speak and act with others politically. I mean, do you realize if you can only criticize, if you can only troll, if you can only demonize, you're a slave. If you don't have the charity of heart or even just the sheer honesty of heart to recognize something in that person that's worthy of respect, not least the fact that they are made in the image of God, then you are an idolater. I am an idolater. We're called to a humble kind of respect that refuses to dehumanize even when you are being dehumanized. And only God can give you power to do that. To have the ability to affirm even when your opponent is right. Even in the midst of disagreement to say, yes, what you said was true. To be able to praise them when they do good. And without so many qualifications that you're undermining that praise. Can we show respect out of freedom in God? Thirdly, refusal to bow, respect for opponents, readiness to lose. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ready to die. They knew that this was the cost of their loyalty to God. And they had embraced this potential loss. They said and testified before the king, after all, even if God does not rescue us, they were ready. And even according to the words of the king, after they were rescued, 
He himself testified, they trusted in God and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives. Loyalty to God gives you the freedom politically to lose. And that's something that too many of us aren't willing to embrace. Recently, David French, a political commentator and a member of a church in our denomination, I think, reflected on this very helpfully. Just want to quote briefly what he wrote. He was speaking into a specific angle of our current political moment. I want to broaden it a little bit and make sure it applies to all of us wherever we're located politically. But this is what he said. Why would you adopt moral standards that put you at a disadvantage in an existential political struggle? If we don't stand by, now insert political candidate or official or cause, we will lose. And losing is unacceptable, goes the standard thinking. Pastor of my old church, he writes, used to refer to the kingdom of God as upside down. The last are first. To gain your life, you have to lose it. It simply defies earthly common sense. As Paul said, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. I'm reminded, French writes, of the old Christian hymn, Trust and Obey. While it ruins the rhyme, I like the concept with the words reversed, obey and trust. Obey the creator of the universe when he tells me to love my enemies and then trust that justice will still be done and that God's will still prevail. So that we're able to, in freedom, not bow our knee to immoral means in order to gain political wins. So that we're able to understand that short-term losses might be long-term wins in the eyes of the kingdom of God. Now that makes no sense by worldly political calculations in the eyes of the world. But we work and operate by a different standards. We walk and live and even serve in the political square, the public square, according to a different standard, the standard of the cross, where loss is gain and death is life. And even through a cross, you might find resurrection. Freedom of this sort gives us a unique kind of readiness to lose, and a freedom from a grip on winning at all costs, even at compromise and sacrifice to our allegiance to God. How do we do all this? It sounds impossible, I know. But the answer that this passage gives us lastly is that we need to know Jesus' own covenant loyalty to you. Because all of our loyalties to God is simply a return in smallest measure of what God himself has promised and given to us. We're told in this amazing sequence here in verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was just surprised, astonished. He, he hurried and rose up and he declared to the counselors, hold on a second, didn't we throw in three guys into the fire? And they said, yeah, that's true. And in verse 25, he answered and he said, Look, I see four men, four men walking around in the fire and unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. 
For centuries, commentators and readers of Scripture have wondered who this fourth individual that accompanied these three young men might have been. At the least, it appears like it was an angel, a messenger from God, from heaven, giving them comfort and strength, protecting them. Surely God was with them. But some also suggest, could it also be even more than just an angel? Sure, the presence of God, but maybe perhaps even the very Son of God. Uh, Before he took on flesh one day to become the person of Jesus, the very presence of God personally himself, walking in amongst these three men in the fiery furnace. You see, here's a tangible, powerful picture of Christ who is covenantally bound to you, with you, Emmanuel, even in the fire. This same one, Emmanuel, God with us, 600 years later would come near and draw near, but then also go into another furnace for you, for me. Not a literal one, but in fact one that was far, far worse. Because he on the cross suffered the hottest of all furnaces, God's wrath on the cross for every one of our sins and idolatries, even our political idolatry. Hell itself was poured upon the soul of the Son of God. He who went in with the readiness to lose, to die, so that you and I might have life so that in resurrection life we might be united to Christ, that he might be eternally loyal to us, near to us, by our side, even dwelling within us. This God who says, I will never leave you. This God who says, my mercies are unending. This God who says, there's nothing that can separate you from me. This very God who is forsaken by God, the Son lying, hanging on the cross, who cried out, I thirst. So parched was his soul in the furnace into which he went, this furnace in which we belonged, God with us, because he loves us. Dear friends, if you know this God, if you experience this Christ and his dying loyalty to you, can we not also see that he deserves even the smallest bit of our allegiance of soul in return. There's a fascinating outcome in the end of this passage in verse 30. The king actually promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was so thrilled about the outcome. He said, hey, everyone worship this guy, and hey, you guys get a raise. And the point, of course, is not that if you remain loyal to God, you're going to get a promotion. Or not even that if you are loyal to God, you'll always succeed politically. But if you are seeking blessing, and even perhaps political success, at least the point is this. To get there, you don't need to abandon your loyalty to God. And far too many of us are tempted to do so. But God is faithful. God is faithful. On a different occasion, Our brother Michael Ware spoke these insightful words, and I'll close with this. The future of faith in American politics depends on Americans' understanding that it is not healthy to engage in politics with our feet planted in politics.
Politics is not a foundation that can bear the weight of our best aspirations. The safest place to engage in politics is with our feet planted firmly in the gospel, allowing our spiritual needs to be met by God, and thus being freed up to engage in politics in pursuit of the well-being of our neighbors and communities. Beloved, beware of the idolatry of politics, the religionification of politics. Plant your feet firmly in the gospel of Christ's furnace-enduring commitment and love to you. And then you'll find yourself to be among the freest people in the city, free to love your God and free to love your neighbor. And my goodness, even your political enemy. Let's pray. We need your wisdom. We need change of heart. But what we most need is a vision of this Christ, his loyalty, his love, your commitment to us, your nearness to us. Change our hearts with a fresh vision of your son, O oh God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.